Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Uh, to start off, just a reminder, if you want to see our weekly culture update, uh, a lot of blog articles, or you want to listen to any of these shows from past weeks, uh, last week's show was an interview with Larry Taunton, who wrote the new book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Those are all up at thebridgehead.ca, and can also be found on the Bridgehead iTunes or the Bridgehead on SoundCloud. So uh, back to the important stuff. This week we have an interview with uh, one of my favorite current commentators. His name is Kevin D. Williamson, and he writes for the National Review. And he has really managed to put his fingers on the pulse of a few issues uh, that I have been trying to debate in my own head for quite some time. Uh, trying to figure out the Donald Trump phenomenon was one of them. Uh, I, I have a tendency of thinking that it has a lot to do with celebrity culture uh, and the fact that huge numbers of, of North Americans are now functionally illiterate. Uh, so at the end of the day, as Winston Churchill once said, the best argument against democracy is, is a five-minute discussion with the average voter. And I think he also said uh, that democracy is, is the worst system of government except for all others that have been tried. And Kevin D. Williamson has really written quite fiercely uh, on the, the rise of Donald Trump in, in some brilliant articles. I'm, I'm a subscriber to National Review myself, so I've, I've, been, I've been reading a lot of his stuff with interest. And, and first I want to start off with something that uh, David French, uh, who also writes for the National Review, and he's been a very good culture commentator, and talking about the cultural rise of, of the Trump phenomenon. And he, has, he said this, and it was very interesting. Uh, for generations, conservatives have rightly railed against deterministic progressive notions that put human choices at the mercy of race, class, history, or economics. Those factors can create additional challenges, but they do not relieve any human being of the moral obligation to do their best. Yet millions of Americans aren't doing their best. Indeed, they're barely trying. As I've related before, that being, of course, David French, my church in Kentucky made a determined effort to reach kids and families that were falling between the cracks. And it was consistently astounding how little effort most parents and their teen, teen children made to improve their lives. If they couldn't find a job in a few days, or perhaps as little as a few hours, they'd stop looking. If they got angry at teachers or coaches, they'd drop out of school. If they followed their wife, they had sex with a neighbor. And always, always, there was a sense of entitlement. And that's where disability or other government programs kicked in. There they were, beckoning, giving men and women alternatives to gain full employment. You don't have to do any work. Your disability lawyer does all the heavy lifting. You make money and you get drugs. At our local regional hospital, it's become a bitter joke to the extent which the community is hooked on Xanatab, the Xanatab and Lortab prescriptions that lead to drug dependence. Of course we should have compassion, even as we call on people to do better. I have compassion for kids who often see the worst behavior modeled at home. I have compassion for families facing economic uncertainty. But compassion can't excuse or enable self-destructive moral failures. Now, David French here was defending a, a savage column Kevin D. Williamson wrote in the National Review called The Father Fuhrer. And he was talking about how a poor white America was constantly complaining while refusing to take personal responsibility, and that this is what, according to a lot of commentators, feeds the Trump phenomenon. And here's what Williamson wrote. 
It is immoral because it perpetuates a lie that the white working class that finds itself attracted to Trump has been victimized by outside forces. It hasn't. The white middle class may like the idea of Trump as a giant pulsing humanoid middle finger held up in the face of the cathedral. They may sing hymns to Trump the destroyer and whisper darkly about the globalist and odious stupid term, the establishment, but nobody did this to them. They failed themselves. If you spend time in hard scrabble white upstate New York or eastern Kentucky or my own native West Texas, and you take an honest look at welfare dependency, the drug and alcohol addiction, the family anarchy, which is to say, the whelping of human children with all the respect and wisdom of a stray dog, you will come to an awful realization. It wasn't Beijing. It wasn't Washington, as bad as Washington can be. It wasn't immigrants from Mexico, excessive and problematic as our current immigration levels are. It wasn't any of that. Nothing happened to them. There wasn't some awful disaster. There wasn't a war or a famine or a plague or a foreign occupation. Even the economic changes of the past few decades do very little to explain the dysfunction and negligence, the incomprehensible malice of poor white America. So the gypsum business and garbage ain't what it used to be. There is more to life in 21st century than wallboard and cheap sentimentality about how the man closed the factories down. Now you can imagine how angry this analysis made a lot of people uh, because Williamson really gives it to them between the eyes. And he, he did a follow-up column where he was explaining why uh, so many conservatives are uncomfortable with those they find themselves uh, in the same camp as because those people seem so angry. But here's the way uh, he put it. I thought this was brilliant. Uh, even when the two sides, that being aspirational Republicans versus resentment Republicans, as, they call, as he calls them, agree, they disagree. A great many aspirational Republicans oppose gay marriage or permitting homosexual couples to adopt children because they believe that traditional family is a natural part of human life and that traditional families produce happier, healthier children and societies. Resentment Republicans oppose gay marriage because those perverts are disgusting. For them, the political is very, very personal. I think in that one paragraph, uh, Kevin D. Williamson has done more to capture uh, the divide in uh, what used to be conservatism and, and is now uh, a strange and evolving movement that we all wait with bated breath to uh, to see the end of. Uh, but it was it was just really striking to me that somebody would be able to to capture what was going on so effectively. So uh, I was quite happy when Kevin D. Williamson agreed to to come on my show and and discuss the future of conservatism. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is a conversation with Kevin D. Williamson. You've been at the center of a controversy recently after you wrote your, uh, your article, Chaos in the Family, Chaos in the State, the White Working Class's Dysfunction. But if, if you go to the facts you lay out in the article about uh, towns, for example, they're dying because their primary source of, uh, of income dried up you know, 50, 60, even 70 years ago, why do you think this backlash to your, your fairly straightforward thesis has resulted? Well, I think it's basically identity politics. Uh, people have attachments to certain kinds of places and cultures and ways of life. And uh, when those against economic realities that are difficult for them, they react in emotional ways. Well, what is, what is uh, fundamentally your, your thesis about the, the myth of the persecution of the white working class? Well, uh, there are a couple of things going on right now. So with whites who are uh, lower income, not college educated, that sort of thing, they are currently experiencing some real, very serious social problems, which are resulting in, among other things, shorter life expectancies, which is a really unusual thing to see life expectancies decline in a 
in an advanced country. Mm-hmm. And the things that are driving these uh, deaths are mainly problems related to alcohol abuse, opiate abuse, and suicide. So we're talking about a culture of largely self-inflicted problems that are at some point rooted in a sense of despair and uh, chaos that's only partly economic, I think, in nature. And this, you know, you use the example of, of, of gypsum in, in, in your column, and you talk about the, the destruction of the family and the careless raising of children, and I was struck that your analysis sounded very similar to, uh, you know, for example, pro-life leaders trying to analyze why abortion rates are so sky-high in African-American communities, for example. Your, mm-hmm. your critique of the family breakdown is very, very similar. Uh, how do you think this came about in, in the poor white communities? Because they don't have the same, if you, if you will, explanation or excuse, depending on, 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 on what you prefer, that the African-American community does, which was uh, genuine oppression at some point in the not-that-distant yeah. past. Yeah, one of the um, annoying things about this has been that conservatives for years have been basically making these same observations about uh, the African-American community, particularly the urban African-American community, that at some point, regardless of what happened in the past, regardless of what the current economic realities are, that people eventually have to take responsibility for themselves, that they have to behave as proper parents and take care of their families and get educated and get jobs and all that sort of stuff. And we've been saying this for, you know, 40 years, 50 years probably uh, with African-Americans, and it's always been, yes, 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 of course, that's absolutely right. Um, you make the same argument about declining and stagnant white working class communities and suddenly uh, conservatives aren't nearly as um, amenable to those arguments, which is strange and suspicious and despair-inducing to me. What we've seen, though, I think, is that um, the decline of the American family is not something that's been driven by economics or by public policy. I mean, there have been policy features that have enabled that, such as the universal access to no-fault divorce, and the liberalization of abortion, some things to do with welfare benefits that uh, sort of subsidize uh, what would have been unsustainable family structures in the past, that sort of thing. But these things weren't imposed on the American public. This was government catching up to the people where they are. Right. And one of the, uh, the, the, the sad and um, hard-to-understand and hard-to-explain things is that this culture that has evolved has been the the result of choices that people have made because of what they want. And people value uh, untrammeled sex and the disconnection between sex and marriage and those sorts of things more than almost anything else in society, apparently. I mean, if we're taking a look at people's revealed preferences versus their expressed preferences, how people actually live their lives and the choices that they make when they're empowered to do so, um, these are the results that we see. Well, it's interesting. One of one of my friends recently said to me that the most depressing thing about the rise of Trump is that so many of his followers are uttering sort of the the racist things that you know Dinesh D'Souza said didn't exist in the United States anymore, and sort of proved mm-hmm. a lot of left wing accusations right. But I read another quite interesting column that said um, 
the decline in influence of, of magazines like the National Review with the rise of the Internet and sort of the democratization of commentary, uh, where uh, William F. Buckley originally could say no to the Birchers, no to the anti-Semites, uh, no to you know, a whole variety of characters now referring to themselves as the alt-right. Now, because mm-hmm. they have other ways of, of putting forward their ideas and making their views known, conservatism is again becoming diluted. Yeah, I'm not sure that I think that's exactly the right uh, analysis. I mean, it's not like those institutions and organizations and tendencies went away after National Review famously uh, read them out of the movement back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've always been out there. Social media allows them to have more of a public profile than they probably did in the past. Although I'm old enough to remember uh, when mass faxes from, you know, sort of crazy uh, racist and neo-Nazi organizations, the conspiracy theorists were a big thing back in the 80s and other sorts of, you know, mailers and things before that. So that culture has always been there. It's uh, the sort of thing that in some ways animated some aspects of the, the Ron Paul movement, the Pat Buchanan movement, uh, McGovern before that. There's always been a tendency in the American public, and it's not just on the right, because you see very similar things and very similar rhetoric on and Bernie Sanders side of things, mm-hmm. that's suspicious of trade, suspicious of bankers, uh, suspicious of foreigners in general, and that believes that social interactions with people who are outside of the national group, especially inter- economic interactions, are inherently destructive and undesirable. And what do you think is, is driving the support for Donald Trump, specifically the father Fuhrer, as, he, as you refer to him, in the conservative mm-hmm. movement? Because and you know, on this point has been beaten to death, so I don't want to belabor it. But nobody predicted it. But for some reason, the hot air balloon just hasn't been punctured. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how much of that support actually comes from conservatives. I mean, you've certainly seen a lot of conservative media figures, particularly people in talk radio and cable news, that have been drawn to that. And that's fairly straightforward, cynical, economic, self-seeking, because he's good for ratings, and because they're afraid to be on the wrong side of any particularly angry mob of any appreciable size. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the people who are being brought into the Trump movement, at least the ones that I've experienced outside of the realm of you know, organized media and politics, have not been people who are what you would call ideologically conservative, although they might be sort of temperamentally conservative. Uh, they're people who object to a great deal of what conservatives in the United States traditionally have stood for, which is free trade, capitalism, property rights, those sorts of things. And um, they, you know, they come from a very different set of values and a different point of view. So would you say then that the uh, the rather overt defections to the Trump side of things by, by people like Sean Hannity and Ann Coulter, for example, both fairly prominent conservative figures at one point who drew huge audiences at CPAC, both have written books in which they very carefully delineate social conservative policies that that the lifestyle of Donald Trump has repudiated in every imaginable form. How do you, do you think it's crass, uh, you know, economic opportunism for them as well, or do you think they just want to pick the winning side so that they could perhaps, you know, be a player in a future Trump administration, or what do you think it is? In that case, I think it's just economic opportunism and cowardice. Cowardice. That sums it up quite nicely. And it's interesting, uh, one of the things I've, I, I've found the National Review 
doing quite brilliantly, especially over the last six months. Uh, both yourself and David French uh, were addressing the issue of personal responsibility in regards to the white working class communities when, when no one else was. And as you say, personal responsibility was is sort of the, the cornerstone of, of conservative thought. However, uh, there seems to be this strange schizophrenia in a lot of these communities that says, I want the government off my back, and simultaneously, the government is responsible for all of my problems. How does that schizophrenia take hold? Yeah, well, this be a headline, Father Fuhrer. Uh, they take <laughs> in a sort of actively paternalistic view of, of politics, which is that the job of the president especially is to be a kind of patriarch, to take care of the national family rather than to be the chief administrator of a federal bureaucracy that has certain jobs that it does. And um, I think that one of the the emotionally attractive aspects of identity politics and this victimization is that it gives you a chance to argue that you should be receiving various kinds of government benefits without making yourself feel like a, uh, you know, what we used to call a welfare queen. Right. So if it's not your fault, if you have been victimized by, you know, nefarious forces in Beijing and Mexico City, and whatnot, um, then there's not as much stigma attached to seeking special benefits for yourself. What is the primary objection to your your, your collection of pieces there on, on that thesis, Ben? Oh, you see the usual sorts of shallow things. Well, you would never say this about an African-American community, which, of course, I wrote a whole book about Detroit and the racial politics that led to that city's failure in Philadelphia and some other places. Um, yeah, there's the usual, uh, kind of half-informed anti-trade stuff, but normally what it comes down to is, is just, well, I don't like that you wrote that, right. and it hurts my feelings, and therefore I won't support you, and I always remind people that I, I'm not actually running for office, you know, I'm not a member of any party, I don't advise a campaign, I'm not a political candidate, and if I, what I have to say isn't popular, then it's not popular. That doesn't mean that it's not true. Right. Well, and and, and that leads me to the, the the second piece that really caught my eye, because one of the things that uh, I had been struggling with as conservatism has sort of changed over the past five or ten years, or at least the more uh, overt and public manifestations of it have, is that I found myself on the same side as a lot of very distasteful people. I found myself on the same side as a, as a lot of people who said things um, that, while I, I hate to play the race card, uh, seemed at very minimum suspicious of people not like them. Uh, the people who, who had a rather bizarre fixation uh, with with slavery and the Confederacy and things like that, uh, in in ways Jewish that, bankers. Uh, Jewish bankers always kind of crop up, and and they would always just ask you know inquiring questions with raised eyebrows, like how do you explain X? Uh, and you were intended to draw your own conclusions without them having to make their rather distasteful sentiments known. But your article, yeah. aspirational versus resentment Republicans, uh, I. When I read it, I actually had a sort of a clicking moment, and I was, I, I was like, you perfectly captured the, the polarities that I see on the conservative side. So what is your analysis? What is a, an aspirational Republican versus a resentment Republican? Well, there are you know, essentially two ways, I think, that um, people react emotionally to what we broadly call inequality in society. And uh, you know, I, some of this comes from my own personal experience of having grown up in a... Uh, you know, a household of, of rather modest circumstances um, amid a great deal of dysfunction of the sort that I write about. 
And, you know, you see these people who have wealthier, more prosperous, happier, more stable lives. And there, there are two ways of, of reacting to that. One is, you know, I hate these people because I'm envious of them, and they must have somehow gotten something over on the rest of us. Or that's actually how I want to live my life. I'd like to be more like that. How do I get from where I am to there? And uh, you know, there are two different strains, I think, that are really identifiable, not just on the conservative side, but I'm writing about it on the conservative side because that's what I know best, mm-hmm. that says, well, here's the situation we have. We're in a situation where there are some people in our society who are deeply unhappy, who are suffering from all sorts of very real and serious uh, social and personal problems. Now, what's our analysis of this going to be? Is it going to be that, you know, it's because some, you know, wily Mexican you know, snuck across the border so he could make $2 a day, and therefore you've been somehow indirectly victimized by this, or because your average Chinese household making $7,400 a year has somehow outmaneuvered you in the global marketplace because, you know, we can't compete with, uh, you know, these, you know, poorly educated, lightly skilled third world countries. Or are we going to take a different look at things and say that, there are things that we can do to improve it where we are. There are policy changes that need to be made. And that there are also personal changes that need to be made. Because at the end of the day, you really are responsible for your own life. No one can come and force you not to have a family you can't provide for, not to spend all your money and fail to save it, not to ruin your credit and acquire an addiction and a criminal record and all the rest of those things. And I think that that is um, you know, something we really have to think about, both in terms of mood and affect and style, but also in terms of the substance of the policies we talk about. Because as long as we take a uh, point of view and an agenda that's basically oriented around finding someone to blame, preferably someone non-American and non-white, uh, someone that's you know, got sort of a, a nefarious cultural history that we can exploit, then that will prevent us from ever actually paying proper attention, I think, to the actual problems. And is there anyone that's willing to sort of, in these communities that you're talking about, that is willing to sort of consider the the whole personal responsibility angle? Because your description reminds me almost precisely of of an old joke about the Irish and the British. They say, you know, a British guy would walk past a mansion on a hill and say, one day I'm I'm, I'm going to buy a house just like that. And the Irish guy walked past the hill and said, one day I'm going to get that guy. And that yeah. <laughs> seems to encapsulate what you're saying. But is there any movement in, in these communities to, to, to get out and get better jobs and start trying to uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, not to be too cliche? Well, in fact, yes, there has been for a long time. And in fact, one of the problems that a lot of these communities face, and also uh, African-American communities in places like Detroit face, is that these movements happened and they were successful. You know, if you look at the... Uh, median household income in Detroit from 1960, 1950, 1960, 1970, what you'll see is that the entire black middle class pretty much leave Detroit all at once over the course of about 10 years. Uh, If you look at places like eastern Kentucky, which are the poorest places in the United States, the out-migration of the skilled, uh, the ambitious, uh, the educated from those places over the course of the past 40, 50 years has been um, dramatic. So one of the problems these communities have is a kind of adverse selection problem where the sorts of people who would normally emerge to be uh, community leaders, entrepreneurs, uh, decent political leaders, those sorts of things, they left. And they're not coming back. They've been gone for a long time. And basically the people with, uh, with much in the way of skills or ambition or drive 
are gone and have been gone. And now a lot of a lot of those who remain are are following, as you put it, Donald Trump. Uh, and I, <laughs> I just realized actually that you were the one who wrote the line that I, I've used in my own writing to to describe Donald Trump, uh, which is witless ape rides escalator. <laughs> ba- yeah. ba- back during his rise, do you think he's going to flame out, or do you think that sort of the you know the hot air politics of resentment is going to bring this thing all the way up into the stratosphere? Uh, it's hard to say. I, I'm not historically very good about making predictions about how political processes uh, end up getting played out. If I were betting my own money, I would bet that he goes into the Republican convention without a majority and ends up losing to Ted Cruz somehow. Right. But um, but that's, it's not impossible that he'll be the nominee, just as it's not impossible that Sanders could be the nominee on the other side, although I think Republicans right now are looking at the Democrats somewhat enviously in regard to their superdelegate system. Right. Right. So what, one final question then. Uh, the future for the conservative movement, what, we, what we've been seeing over the past you know, close to 12 months now, is sort of an open mm-hmm. civil war. Ann Coulter uh, going after people in the most vicious of terms. It seems all that poison she's been brewing for other people is, is, is now good enough for her former compatriots on the conservative side. You've got the National Review uh, publishing there against Trump issue. Uh, and everyone's got their guns pulled, turned inwards when the Democrats have the weakest candidate they've had in a very long time. And we initially had a, a field filled with talented and experienced governors and people with really good ideas. <laughs> we, 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 Republicans could have had Rick Perry or Scott Walker, Bobby Jindal, but this is apparently what they want. So what's the future for the conservative movement inside that? Do you take the Jonah Goldberg view that, you know, they're going to be sort of, uh, you know, the, un- the National Review will be an underground <laughs> leaflet and you'll be promoting these no, ideas there will, the there, will be, uh, there will be, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth and all that stuff as there has been in the past. Um, you know, we have a tendency to always think that the current crisis is the worst crisis, mm-hmm. and you know, this isn't this isn't 1862. It's not even 1968. Right. Uh, the country has been through much worse times, and the conservative movement has been through much more challenging times. Uh, you know, as T. S. Eliot wrote, "There are no lost causes because there are no won causes," and conservatives are going to always have to be fighting for the same things, which is rule of law, property rights, free enterprise, free trade, stable families. And, and all the rest of the things we've always been doing. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no point at which we're going to pass some magical law that's going to obviate the need to keep making that case every day for generations and generations. Considering the tone of your writing, I think people would, would suspect you'd be more likely to quote T.S. Eliot's This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. <laughs> no, actually, I'm, I'm really quite optimistic about the uh, prospects of the United States. You know, the political system isn't the whole show. And each passing year, politics becomes less and less relevant to how we actually live our lives here. What we're seeing in politics is really interesting to me. It's an ever nastier and angrier fight over institutions that are less and less relevant as the years go on. And um, I, I, I tend to think that what's going on in places like Silicon Valley and, uh, and Texas and Pennsylvania or where the future of this country is really being sorted out and not in Washington, D.C. But, but if you'll permit me, doesn't that bring its, its complications as well, considering the fact that corporations seem to be very eager to enforce uh, the, the, the new state morality as well, as we've seen with the North Carolina situation? Yeah, you know, corporations tend to um, go whichever way the wind blows, and those winds can change fairly quickly. I'm not too terribly worried that we're going to live under a Nike dictatorship.
<laughs> Nike dictatorship. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me on. It was my pleasure.